0: Conspiracy show with Richard Sarin from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to
1: the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. Kevin Reeve is the CEO and founder of On Point Tactical Tracking School, and he's standing by, I believe, in Utah. Uh, to discuss urban survival so let's say the lights go out it's a zombie apocalypse metaphorically speaking and you need the skills to avoid capture to escape capture and to survive stay alive in the urban jungle he'll be here to share those skills with us Uh, just a reminder there is no hangout on air tonight repeat no HOA tonight but Albert Vinzel, my producer will be back next week And we will resume the HOA where you can live stream video of this radio program on YouTube. It's really cool. Uh, If you haven't checked it out uh, up until now, please do so. But that that will resume next week. Hey, thanks to all of you who came out to my event tonight. Uh, The Bilderbergs at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium at the University of Toronto. A great turnout to see Daniel Estulin and the premiere of his uh, new documentary film, Bilderberg the Movie. Uh, Keep an eye on the live events page at strangeplanet.ca for, uh, for more upcoming uh, live presentations. In fact, next month, May 21st, I will be hosting an event uh, with, uh, well, it's, it's uh, being presented by Conspiracy Culture, and it features uh, David Pauli- uh, Paulides, the, uh, the author of Missing 411, Unexplained Disappearances of Missing Persons. Uh, you've heard him on uh, Coast to Coast many times. Again, this is a Conspiracy Culture presentation, May 21st. Check out the uh, the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. Uh, get on up to the Conspiracy Show website, strangeplanet.ca, uh, and click on the radio page. And up at the top is our slide carousel, uh, where Albert and I have posted our usual assortment of tantalizing tidbits. There's a piece from Vogue magazine about NSA leaker Edward Snowden and how he was able to... Uh, flee to Russia and remain hidden in the Moscow airport thanks to the efforts of WikiLeaks editor Sarah Harrison. Uh, so in this piece, again, Vogue magazine, uh, it's really about her. And, well, some consider her to be a political heroine and others an accomplice to treason. So you read the article and decide for yourself. Uh, that's just one of the stories you'll find posted in the slide carousel on the website. Again, that strangeplanet.ca. Once you get there, that's the landing page. Just click on the radio page. Okay, let's talk urban survival. Kevin Reeve is the founder and director of On Point Tactical Tracking School. He's provided training for law enforcement, uh, the U.S. military in the arts of tracking survival, escape, and evasion and urban operations. Uh, Prior to founding On Point Tactical, Kevin worked for one of the top tracking schools in America. He spent eight years as a director at this program and was responsible for the the instructor staff there. Kevin has also worked at Apple Computer for five years, doing organizational development and executive coaching, as well as platform training and curriculum development. Kevin has also been involved in scouting for over 25 years, including 15 years as a Scoutmaster. He will be teaching an urban escape and evasion course on May 12th to the 14th, 2016, in Montreal. And this class will provide leading-edge skills to civilians who live or work in challenging urban environments or may who find themselves in a destabilizing urban area during a crisis. Kevin Reeve, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Appreciate having me on. Uh, Tell me about On Point Tactical Tracking School.
2: Well, On Point Tactical is a a, uh, school that was originally designed for military. We started off teaching um, some of the elite military groups concepts of tracking and urban survival. And then after uh, Hurricane Katrina, we opened it up to the the general public. And so um, we have three main curriculums, the scout curriculum, uh, we have an urban curriculum, and we have a tracking curriculum. So we teach... Um, Human tracking, I guess you'd call it pursuit tracking. We teach um, a bunch of skills related to patrolling and um, reconnaissance in the wilderness. And we teach urban survival and urban escape and evasion.
1: Would you consider yourself to be a prepper? I mean, that term is so politically charged these days anyone who who stores food and water now is seems to be looked at like there's some kind of lunatic. I think there's a there's a, I call it a normal bias out there. People just uh, I don't know, they they, they look we, strangely at, at at those of us who think we need to to put a few things away and be and get ready.
2: Yeah, I mean, I consider myself a prepper because I do that. I mean, what's funny about it though is my parents who were who were raised in the depression just did that as a matter of course. It was just what everybody did back then. You had a cellar full of canned fruit and vegetables and things that you grew in your garden, and and that seemed to be the norm back in those days. But nowadays it's looked at as a as a as a form of hoarding or something.
1: It's true, and that's because our parents' generation had their metal tested. They had you know a depression and then the Second World War. Uh, and mm-hmm. subsequent generations have not had their metal tested, but I fear that is going to change. I think the, the next generation is going to have their metal tested, perhaps like no other. What are your thoughts?
2: No, I agree. Uh, we, it, it, what we are doing now is not sustainable. We are headed for some form of uh, demise, and I can't tell you exactly where or how. I just know that, it, that what we're doing can't be sustained.
1: And what concerns you the most is when you talk about sustainability is it uh, for example uh the grid system that is uh, has not been hardened and and is just waiting for some sort of a natural cataclysm or a man-made uh, cataclysm or is it the, or is it the economy which seems to be sort of mired in in uh, re- recession although you know all the mainstream media says oh we're doing fine but clearly we're not
2: Yeah I mean take your pick the FBI announced today that the electrical grid was extremely susceptible to a terrorist attack. I thought that was, I mean, the fact that they're announcing that is an indication that it's probably way worse than they're announcing. Um, and then, uh, you know, you, you 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 what I say we can't sustain is is our economic growth. We just can't keep going uh, as we've been going. It's all it's all a house of cards. And and then, you know, there's the possibility of a pandemic. There's the possibility of of uh, war. I I look around at the world and I say, is it safer now than it was 10 years ago, or is it less safe? And I would have to say that it is less safe.
1: All right. When you, I mean, you're consulting and working with uh, local police departments and the military. You've worked with Uh Navy Navy SEALs, teams one, two, three. I mean, you name it, you've been there. Um, What did they... I mean what are you tr- training them to do? How are you working with them, and why do they come to kevin reeve what do you, What is it that you can offer
3: them well
2: for for a long time there was no um, not a whole lot of tracking being caught in the military. and that's a that's a real force multiplier so uh, I started off teaching math but I also had uh, a, a good friend who was a he was a marine scout sniper who then uh, when he got out went to israel and uh became a a member of their special forces, and he convinced me that we needed to teach escape and evasion in an urban environment, because all the escape and evasion teachings were based on a wilderness setting. A plane goes down in the middle of nowhere, and they have to escape and evade from enemy forces. So we did the same thing in an urban environment, and that has been our most popular class, both with the military and with, uh, uh, with civilians. Because everybody lives in the city now. You know, a 100 years ago, it was 20% of the population lived in cities, and 80s was rurally, and now it's just the opposite. So if something bad happens while you're in a city, you want to be prepared how to, uh, to know how to take care of yourself and move through that city without putting yourself at great risk.
1: Urban survival, escape, and evasion. Uh, the, yes, the urban jungle. Uh, whenever I talk to, uh, to preppers or survivalist specialists, I always ask them this question, and it seems to me they sort of breaks down into two camps. I'd like to know where you are, and that is uh, when the big one hits, whatever that is, if it's a pandemic, if it's the zombie apocalypse, whatever you want to call it, uh, are you for hunkering down and staying put, or do you have a, uh, a bug-out bag and a, uh, and, a, and a place off the grid somewhere in the woods?
2: The answer is both. Um, I believe that if you are married with uh, children, the chances of you being able to successfully bug out unless you have advanced notice are pretty slim. I mean, there's just not going to be if, – if you're in the center of L.A. and the major earthquake hits and, and all 10 million people are trying to get out of, out of L.A. at the same time, you're not going to succeed. And if you're on foot because the infrastructure is destroyed, you know, you're going to be lucky to get five miles a day with children. So I look at it and say, you know, unless I have uh, advanced warning, I'm probably not going to get out. So um, I suggest most people to prepared to, to hunker down and wait it out for a while until it becomes uh, clear and, and they can bug out if they have a place to go. I I chose to move to a location that would be uh, already a safe location about five years ago. And so I moved out to a mountain, a little mountain town in in southern Utah about five years ago to, uh, because I used to live in New Jersey, which is between a rock and a hard place, rock being New York, hard place being D.C., and um, I had no chance there. But now at least... I can hunker down for a
1: while. So unless you're willing to make that decision now, now and, and and move out and you've got some property somewhere, unless you're willing to do that now, because other, as you say, otherwise you're not going to be able to react to uh, whether it's a, a mass coronal ejection that's going to knock out the grid. We can't anticipate that. We'll get no warning. So you got to make that decision now. Is that the idea? Right. And
2: that's kind of how I see it. I think. Uh, I think... You know, everybody's situation is a little different, and everybody will have to make those decisions on their own. But for me, it looks to me to be a place. To, uh, to, the wisest thing to do is get to a place where I can be safe now, um, because I was in such a hopeless location before. I was in southern New Jersey, and that is just not a good place from a survival perspective. And
1: I, I I don't know your your personal situation. Married? Children?
2: Uh, yeah, married, children, and um, I travel for my job, so I'm all over the the uh, I'm all over the country. In fact, I'm coming to Montreal in May. I have to tell you, for those listeners in Canada, um, that is uh, uh, that is just my lifestyle. So. My big issue will be getting home from some distant location,
1: right? Uh, but one of the things that I o- I also talk to to preppers and survivalists about is forming networks and communities. For example, we can't all be a jack of all trades um, and you know master of none. You can't, uh, you know. So the idea is that you want to you want to uh, if you are going to be out in the boonies, you want to be able to network and maybe have build a community. So you you know a guy he's a dentist over here. You know somebody who can fix a generator.
2: Yep. Now I have. A, we have a company motto, and the first two of them actually. The first one is training trumps gear, and that means that it's better to be trained than than equipped, because your training will get you through even without the equipment. But the second part of it is that community trumps training. And what I mean by that is I can't do everything, regardless of how well trained I am. I can't cook, um, wash the dishes, care for them do the medical care do the security, you know, chop the wood, tend the garden. I can't do everything. You have to have an economy of scale. You have to have communities. And so I'm a big advocate of forming communities now. We've been working with a lot of people in our own community just in terms of training and preparation for any kind of an event, and the event really isn't that important as, as, as much as the effect of the event. And uh, we encourage everybody to do that, you know, get together with like-minded folks, have conversations, spend time together. And I, I, a lot of people focus on, on militia-type training or gun-type training. That's, that's a, a small aspect of it. It's, it's all around. It's all about learning how to be self-sufficient, uh, how, to, how to plant a garden and grow your own produce, how to put, preserve that, you know, how to take care of one another medically deal with disease and, and injury. And, and so there's a, a whole bunch of stuff other than guts. And that's, uh, if I have a criticism of the traffic community, it's way too much emphasis on, on that. I do think there's a place for it, but it's just one aspect of it. Anyway.
1: Uh, absolutely. Uh, Kevin Reeve is with us, the founder and director of On Point Tactical Tracking School. And uh, we'll tell you about his upcoming event in May in Montreal. On the other side, Richard Serrett, The Conspiracy Show, Don't
0: Go Away. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show. With Richard Saraf from Zoomer Radio,
1: we are back with Kevin Reeve, founder director of On Point Tactical Tracking School. He provides training to law enforcement, SAR teams, U.S. military, in the arts of tracking, survival, escape, and evasion, and urban operations. And he's now offering this uh, knowledge and these skills uh, to the public. And you're coming to uh, Montreal, just down the uh, the 401 east of where I'm sitting, uh, Kevin, in May. Uh, tell me more about that.
2: Well, we do our urban escape and evasion class, which is our kind of flagship class, um, May 12th to 14th. And uh, we've reduced the cost considerably for Canadians because of the, uh, the current exchange rate. And uh, it's normally uh, 795 U.S., and it's down to 495 U.S., to uh, allow those in Canada to have a chance.
1: We're getting hammered. We are getting hammered.
2: It's like I've never seen it that bad. I don't know if it's been that bad in the past, but it it seems unusually bad for Canadians right
1: now. Well, uh, yeah, we are a... uh, We still, uh, 150 years into our existence, we remain drawers of water and hewers of wood. We are so tied to uh, the energy sector that... uh, Right, and no, no, uh, no, light at the end of this tunnel, unfortunately. Well, and
2: and, and the collapse of the oil prices is
1: exactly that's has exactly pretty much killed all of the shale oil. Indeed, uh, boom that
2: was going on. So yeah, I know it's a tough it's a tough world right now.
1: It is, uh, and and you know we were talking about you know the the economic uh, situation, and and you know a lot of people read the Wall Street Journal and think, well, it's steady as she goes, and and but I just don't see it. I mean, I think. Uh, with China, they're uh, they're uh, almost in a panic situation, and they're the only thing that's really keeping <laughs> the world economy afloat right now. So uh, we're all in for, as as we mentioned earlier, some some tough times. So wh- give us a sort of a glimpse into some of these uh, th- this course that you'll be offering in Montreal in May. Uh, and, and well, the
2: idea is that you might be in an, an overseas traveling and encounter uh, overthrow of the government. But it could be a local event. It could be something just in your own town. It could be a nationwide event, a terrorist event, a big earthquake. It doesn't matter. Anything that disrupts the delivery of goods and services, will call the event. And this is a class on how to uh, prepare yourself, essentially, to travel through a city without um, without a ton of uh, of. Equipment, you know, the idea is to try and teach yourself how to live as minimally as possible. But, you know, some very basic things. But we teach you how to escape from custody in case you're unlawfully detained. Uh, How to get out of handcuffs and fleshy cuff and rope and and, uh, duct tape and things like that. We we go into uh, lockpicking to get you resources. Everything you need to survive exists in the city. You don't have to go to another city to find it. You just have to get to it. So we teach lock picking. We teach um, people how to uh, defeat the ignition of cars so that you can obtain transportation to get home. Now, all of this is predicated upon the fact that we have lost the rule of law, which will happen shortly after any kind of major event.
1: Yeah, that's important to point out, that you're not training petty thieves Ciminals. here. <laughs> exactly, yes.
2: Yeah, we, we screen pretty carefully in that respect. Um, you know, we don't allow anybody with that's a convicted felon to take the class because of... Uh, just some liability issues that we don't want to deal with. So we we screen, we we try and keep everybody um, above board on why they're learning it, but the the, the skills are the same either way. So, you know, after uh, Hurricane Katrina struck, most of the police force went home to take care of their families. And I don't blame them, but that left New Orleans without any law enforcement. And that's what I would expect in a situation where, Um, where an event occurs and and uh, the grid as we know it goes down the problem is that when there is no rule of law people behave poorly and um, you need to be prepared for that you need to be prepared for people who have no consequences for
1: their behavior that's right that's what I call the zombie apocalypse is when the lights Mm -hmm. go out and the first you know people are actually kind of civil and helpful uh, until their stomach is empty and then (laughs) As you say, all hell breaks loose. That, to me, is the, the zombie apocalypse, when you have hordes of angry, hungry people running around uh, who will do anything and who wouldn't want right. you know, to eat.
2: And, that, and that's that's your next-door neighbor. That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's the guy who's always been—you uh, shared the carpool with, you know. that's We, we think everybody's going to remain civilized, and, and in fact, in most societal breakdowns, we go through about four phases— four or five phases. The first phase is is a cooperation phase where everybody's trying to help each other out, and and that could go 24 hours to a week, depending on on how serious the situation. But following that is a suspicion phase where people are uh, not quite distrustful, but a little bit more suspicious, and they're not quite as helpful. They're thinking more of their own family and so forth. And then we get into, if no help arrives and no Resources are restored. We get a, a, an anarchy phase where everybody is out on their own, you know, and, and trying to get their own resources and feed their own family. And that's a really dangerous phase because people will do anything. That's what you were saying. And then the the next phase is, is tribalism, where people start to self-organize and group up according to, um, of, you know, either social class or race or whatever. This is, not a uh, this is just history i'm not yeah this I'm is the ugly
1: underbelly of of the human existence or the human condition mm-hmm.
2: and then eventually what will happen is people will start to consolidate power and you'll end up with warlords and, and that kind of situation so that's kind of how society goes through a, a a collapse and you know sometimes there's government to step in and reinforce and return to normalcy after even the suspicion phase and sometimes there isn't um, so if you look at recent events in uh, oh, Argentina, what's happening in Venezuela right now, you're seeing pretty much us, th- them moving into the tribal phase. They're 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 in the anarchy right now, and, and you're going to start seeing groups form for self-protection, and, and uh, you know it's it's really quite predictable and it's very interesting. But our class is designed to teach you how to recognize where you are and prepare yourselves um for for those eventualities by um, by having some skills that will that will get you through
1: now most of us I, I shouldn't say most of us uh myself i can speak clearly about myself not in the greatest uh, physical shape you know i shouldn't be i should be in far better shape uh as sort of the protector of the family uh but how important is is having uh you know the ability to um well, stamina certainly is important, but just physical strength.
2: Well, it's all. It, 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 endurance is probably more important than physical strength, but being in good shape is is crucial. You know, I have. Uh, I was talking with a, a special operations guy yesterday uh, that uh, I spent some time with, and we were talking about the fact that uh, most people, if they had to walk twenty miles home from work. Would be completely destroyed by the effort, right. you know, just getting home from work twenty miles would destroy their feet, they wouldn't be able to walk for three days, they'd have horrible blisters and they and and that is going to be a huge issue. Um, if you are traveling with children, you may have to be carrying your backpack and your child, and um, you know everybody assumes that that they can just throw on their pack and go, never having done it before, or not having done it for a long time. I make no illusions about that for myself. I understand exactly what my limitations are, and so um, consequently, you know most people will overestimate their physical condition and their capabilities in terms of movement and dramatically underestimate the complexity of traveling with children.
1: excellent point, yeah, uh, yeah, just getting so that, getting them to school and back is a military maneuver,
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, seriously, think about. Think about the logistics of living on a trail, on the trail with three or four kids um, of varying ages, from, from infant to toddler to young teen, you know, what, what kinds of complexity that will add. That's just going to be very difficult.
1: Well, so if there ever was a time uh, for all of us, you know, middle-aged parents and, or anyone, really, it, to, time to get in shape, you know, if there's ever a greater motivation, I don't know what is, then, you know, a possible breakdown in social order and all that's standing between you and the mob is, you know, whether you can uh, hike through the woods with a with your child on your back. I mean, that's a motivating factor. People need, we all need to get in shape now.
2: Yeah, that's very true.
1: What's in your, your bug-out bag? Let's say, for example, um, uh, my... Um, uh, had family that recently flew into uh, Istanbul, uh, just for an hour on their way to uh, to Europe to get a connecting flight. But I mean, that's a, that's kind of a dicey place right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's say, God forfend, something happens um, at an airport or at a hotel in a place like Istanbul. What do you? What, what's in your bug out bag? What do you need to have with you?
2: Well, I I, I base it, this on a set of priorities that we've identified as essential in an urban environment. Your first priority is your immediate security. So if someone's shooting at you, you need to get behind cover. If somebody's chasing you, you need to run. If the building's on fire, you need to get outside. That doesn't necessarily require anything in my bug-out bag. It's just a a mindset. The second thing, I have to do a medical check. I've just been in some kind of intense event, and I need to check myself medically and treat myself. So first aid. I, I have two different levels of first aid. One is a trauma kit. Which is designed for treating gunshot and knife wounds. It is a very specific kit. Uh, and the second is a first aid kit, which is for cutting, treating cuts and bruises and, and we call it the boo boo kit. It's, it's designed for general first aid. And, uh, so first aid, the the third thing I need to, to consider is self-defense. I need to be able to protect myself in a grid down scenario because There will be a lot of people who are operating without any restraint, and I need to be ready to defend myself and my family from them. Everybody has a different take on what that means. For me, where I live, that means I carry a gun. But um, not everybody has that freedom, flexibility. So you may have to improvise a weapon, depending on where. If you're in Istanbul, you probably don't even have a knife with you you're going to have to to sit, sit down really quickly and put together something you can use for self-defense. It might be putting a rock inside a pair of socks, but something that you can use in the event of someone um, coming after you. Uh, then uh, we're going to start looking at our physical needs, attending to our physical needs of of shelter, water, warmth, and food. And so those... I have the items in my kit for those things. I have a tarp to make a shelter. Uh, I have what's called a wooby or a, a poncho liner as a blanket, and everybody has their own. And um, that's our shelter. We have uh, water purification, a very small filter. If you don't mind my mentioning the name. It's the Sawyer uh, personal filter. That's fine, yep. And um, I carry... Fire starting capability. I have a steel striker and cotton balls with uh, Vaseline on them to start fires. I have knives, uh, several knives. Just I'm a knife guy, so I carry a lot of knives. Um, Different sizes and different purposes. I have a multi-tool, most useful tool in the urban environment by far as a multi-tool. It's the one thing I would never go anywhere
1: without. What we used to call, like, a Swiss Army knife. It's got a screwdriver yeah. and a pair of scissors and a several switchblades all in one.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the ones I have are, are just like a Leatherman. It's got uh, a pair of pliers on it and scissors
1: and screwdrivers
2: and knives and file. So that's always with me, and I, I just can't imagine not being able to have that around. Uh, and then I carry... Um, food in this case it's high density energy bar kind of things in my go bag so that I have like a three day supply like 12 uh, of these energy bars I've just found a new one that I'm really fond of and so I'm in the process of replacing them all but those things are worth their weight in gold because food's a low priority but not having it makes you miserable
1: True enough. All right. we um, We're going to take another uh, timeout. And okay. uh, when we come back, we'll, we'll um, we remind folks again about this upcoming uh, event in Montreal in May with Kevin Reeve, who is the founder, director of On Point Tactical Tracking School. And uh, the website is onpointtactical.com. And we've linked up to that on our website here at strangeplanet.ca. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away.
0: Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740.
1: We are back with Kevin Reeve, founder, director, On Point Tactical Tracking School. We're talking about uh, urban tracking, survival, escape, and evasion. Uh, and it's it's so important to, to be thinking about the urban environment now since we are no longer a rural people. We don't live on the farms. We are all huddle, huddle, or huddled and herded into these uh, uh, teeming population centers. And um, let's assume, though, that uh, there is... Let's talk about pandemics here for a moment, actually, Mm -hmm. Um, because I know that's something that, you know, you're concerned about. And in 2014, of course, we had the Ebola scare and more recently uh, the Zika virus. Although um, I'm I'm you may disabuse me of this. I'm starting to think that whole Zika virus thing was much ado about nothing and maybe uh, part of some grander scheme. Um, I mean, Zika has been around since well, we've known about it for 70, 80 years but anyway, uh let's right. uh, what what on the horizon in terms of a pandemic do you have your eyes on?
2: Well, I'm I'm looking for Ebola. That was a, we were close. I was very very concerned that it might break out. Um but it'll be something like that. It'll be a, a virus that mutates and uh, transmits itself into a human form and and spreads through the population like a virus does. And uh it'll probably be uh, something that is, you know, we, the Earth's population tends to self-correct every so often.
1: Mm. Yeah, we are and overdue. Just, just,
2: just, and we're overdue for that. It's just a fact. We put it off with the with the, the development of antibiotics for for treating bacterial infections. But uh, you know, the, the the fact of the matter is that there's a lot of possibilities in the in the viral environment. There's, I mean, it's just there's always mutations occurring so something's going to hit and it'll spread and given the the rapidness with which we transport ourselves around the world chances are it will probably spread around the world quickly becoming a pandemic rather than an epidemic and then we will have to deal with the with those situations and really if you live in a city and uh, you haven't prepared in any way for a for a pandemic then you're probably just going to get swept up like everybody else with uh, with the disease
1: now these these pandemics um i guess historically sort of burn themselves out in about 90 days pretty uh, typical yes yeah so then we have to start thinking about if we're, gonna, if we're not going to bug out, we're going to hunker down and stay put for 90 days. Uh, I mean, And you talk about social distancing. Uh, talk to me about that and what we, what should, what we should do.
2: Social distancing is a, is a form of isolation, self-imposed, a quarantine, as it were, that allows you to stay away from anybody who might be able to transmit the virus to you. So it means essentially going into your house, closing your door, and not coming out until the 90 days is up, which requires some very specialized preparation. You know, you've got to have a 90-day supply of food. You've got to have uh, over-the-counter medications and so forth to deal with any sicknesses that occur while you're in there uh, or injuries. You have to have water for 90 days, assuming that you know, depending on where you're at and what your situation is, you may not have an endless supply of water. Uh, water services may fail after a pandemic occurs and people can't get to work and keep those services running. So you have to have a certain amount of, of self-sufficiency ready to go before the pandemic occurs. The worst thing I can imagine is having to run down to the store and try and buy water and food because you haven't got any and then exposing yourself to the people who are already contagious
1: i would imagine that that the 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 virus of course or a pandemic would be would be bad enough but it's not the 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 virus that would be and would end up killing most people it would be again the breakdown in social order when the hospitals close because they don't have staff to run them because they're afraid and they're staying home ditto the police and the fire Uh, and the people that watch over the criminals and so forth. It's that breakdown in social order from the fear of the pandemic.
2: Right. Now, here's an interesting um, statistic that I, and I can't remember where I got this, but I I got it from a magazine when I was in L.A. I just don't remember which one. But they said they have a total of about 93,000 hospital beds in L.A. County that service 10 million people. Wow. 93,000 beds, 10 million people. All right, so let's do uh, some math here. They say that in most hospitals, the occupancy rate is about 70%. So 93, let's say there's 70,000 beds, which leaves a surge capacity of 25 or 30,000 beds. Mm-hmm. That's on a good day. Mm-hmm. If there's an emergency of any kind, that those hospitals will so quickly be overrun, overwhelmed, uh, incapable of helping people uh, that, uh, you will not be able to go to uh, a doctor or a hospital to get medical care you will have to be able to take care of yourself and by the way in the in the uh, my my wife's great grandmother always talked about hospitals as places you go to die in her <laughs> mind the, the hospital in the 30s and the 20s and the teens when she was a child that's where you went. That's where people went and
1: died. That's true. Uh, we're, we're coming up on a break here, Kevin, but I, I, I agree. I mean, I, if you're sick, that's the last place I want to be. <laughs> anyway, we'll come back.
3: during the pandemic. Absolutely.
1: The Absolutely. Kevin Reeve, founder, director, On Point Tactical Tracking School, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
0: Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers 416 416 Three six zero zero seven forty, or toll-free at one 740 4740
1: Kevin Reeves stays with us, founder, director, On Point Tactical Tracking School, onpointtactical.com, and uh, he's teaching the public how to, uh, how to survive in the urban jungle, e- evasion, escape, survival, uh, tracking, all very important skills to have. Never more important, uh, as we're staring some. Well, pick pick your cataclysm. Is it uh, an EMP event? Is it uh, an earthquake? Uh, is it a pandemic? Is it um, an economic tsunami which breaks down social order? Uh, even if it's something comparatively minor, something um, you know that that'll pass in three or four days, like a like a blackout, and we've experienced those right here in Ontario. What is the harm in being prepared and having, just like our ancestors did and our parents, having a store of water and food and and, and knowing some basic first aid? It's just, These are just life skills and we have forgotten them and now is the time uh, to get them back. Uh, Kevin, I was watching on YouTube, actually it was a, a story on World Net Daily, and it was about, in, in Denmark, they have uh, these schools for, for kindergarten uh, kids, aged kids, four and five Uh years old, they're called forest kindergartens. And when foreigners go and see how they conduct uh, these uh, kindergarten classes outdoors, in freezing temperature, in the rain, kids running around, learning to use knives to whittle, being left uh, almost unattended, although they're being watched, to climb trees, to do what they want, uh, they're shocked and amazed. But I'm thinking they're on to something, and it's just starting. We're starting to see some of these forest kindergartens in the United States, I think maybe there's a couple, but in in, in Denmark they're like 10 percent. Uh, and to me, this is part of the problem: is uh, is we, um, we we bubble wrap our kids, and we're so we're all so soft. We're just it's not going to take much to sort of bring this society to a to a screeching halt.
2: Right. We have we have create we have become a society that seeks for comfort above all else. We've taken away everything that can cause us pain they can and we never do hard things and our kids are raised uh, playing with, with xbox instead of a tackle box and they never go fishing they never go hiking in in the woods they're they're outdoor averse because they haven't i mean i grew up making tree houses and riding bikes in the neighborhood and and uh, you know all those things that kids in the 60s did and um, you know kids today the the helicopter moms don't want them getting dirty so they don't go play in the backyard, and consequently, they don't ever do anything tough, anything hard, and uh, they grow up delicate so that they have to have quiet rooms if somebody presents a thought that's different than what they're used to.
1: That's right. You're microaggressing me. Please stay away. I don't want to hear (laughs) (laughs) a different (laughs) thought that's contrary to my own
2: if someone tells me i'm microaggressing them i will go straight to macroaggression
1: <laughs> i knew i liked you <laughs> uh well, what about inter- i mean it brings me to the point of why aren't we introducing these skills back into the schools e- even things like learning to can which is a, a completely lost art
2: right i grew up in scouting and uh, i was talking to uh a student recently about that I said, look, the great thing about scouting was I got out and went camping once a month. I went on a 50-mile hike every summer, and that was hard. That was really hard. And and you learn how to do hard things like that, then that toughens you up. It prepares you for those events that are coming. And uh, I, I strongly advocate for, for scouting for both uh, young girls and young men, both, and get out. Get involved in an outdoor program. There are a number of wilderness survival schools. I do a little wilderness survival training, but I don't need children. But there's, uh, uh, we don't teach our kids enough of that, and there's a number of them out there. And I would just encourage you to do a Google search on wilderness survival training for children and find, uh, find some of them. I know that up in Washington State, there are home schools that focus on that. There, are, I know in uh, up in New Hampshire, there are some as well. But it's just a matter of finding them. But I know they're there. And if you are interested in getting your kids toughened up, then get them outdoors. Nothing else. Nothing else works.
1: No, it, exactly.
2: Protective.
1: And we we seriously we need to introduce some of these skill sets back into the school system. Uh, you know learning mm-hmm. we, uh, my boys and I we our my mother-in-law is is with us uh and she's of a certain age you know grew up during the depression the war a civil war in Greece and uh, she's she's teaching my 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 little 9-year-old guy one of them to to darn socks you know just a there simple skill like learning to sew uh is so important
2: yeah that's a great great example you know We live in a disposable society, and and I grew up with a—my parents used to say, if I can remember this, um, I can't remember uh, the—make do or do without, uh, use it up, you something like that. But, you know, essentially it uh, was—and I'm I'm astounded that I can't remember, because I heard it every day of my life for the first 12 years. (laughs) You you blocked it out. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I might have. But it was one—essentially, you know— Learn how to de- how to deal with what you have.
1: Right, and, right. Uh,
2: learn how to repair things and fix things and, and don't just live in a disposable society. Darning socks is a great example.
1: It is, it is. Um, what has you the most concerned uh, right now as you read the news, hear the news? What are you most concerned about?
2: I think the presidential race is... Looking to be a very violent affair before the before the election is over. Uh, I just worry about um, the, the level of discourse, the, the the or the lack of discourse, the level of anger that I see going on. I think that could really disrupt things in the major cities of the United States. Uh, so that concerns me. I I am fully expecting major bad news on the economy any time and. It hasn't happened yet, but I expect it. Uh, it could be China. could start there. I, I'm concerned about war. Um, I'm concerned about Japan and China and the Vietnam and China and, and that blowing up. I'm very concerned about uh, ongoing troubles in the Middle East. I, it's, I look at the world right now and I say, well, spin the cylinder and pull the trigger. It's going to be one of them.
1: Right, right, yeah. It's pretty yeah it seems uh, pretty I, dire. I
2: really I mean I don't know what will trigger it but uh, when it triggers it's going to it's going to get ugly.
1: Are you a uh, a gold bug?
2: I'm uh, silver
1: bug. Yeah. Yeah. It does uh, it does I, tend to per- outperform gold if you can if you can ride the wild uh yeah. <laughs> climbs the wall of worry.
2: Yep, yep. So, you know, I mean it's just a it's just an additional defense. I I I would rather have things in in hard uh, assets like food. But, you know, it's good to have a little bit of everything. Diversification, I guess.
1: Uh, tell us again about the uh, the upcoming event in May, and how do people sign up for that?
2: Uh, they go onto the website, onpointtactical.com, and look for the Montreal class. It uh, runs a Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And um, it should be a hoot. It's, it is really fun. Two days of classroom one day of field exercise, and the field exercise is an adult version of hide and go seek. It is you're just out in the city being chased. Uh, you have to escape from custody. There's just a whole series of events that allow you to practice and, and apply all the stuff that you learned the first two days.
1: And this is adults only. This is not a family affair, or can you bring children? Yeah, it, or? we could
2: we could go with you know older teens, but it's mostly uh, designed as an adult affair because of the the intensity of it—it's—it's uh, it's not with. I mean, it's—it's it's ast- astonishing. You know, it's a—you uh, know, it's a practice event. You know, it's a si- uh, simulation, but it doesn't stop your heart from racing, and people get really, really wound up in the process, and it's really fun.
1: What about um, uh, learning? I mean, uh, you talked about a first aid kit, and and you know, it doesn't take long to learn how to deal with cuts and abrasions. But when you're you had you talked about a trauma kit uh that i would i would think would take obviously some more advanced training. how does one uh without well, going to medical school learn how to to use a trauma kit
2: there go google, google it uh, there are a whole bunch of people out there doing some really good medical training and um, you know you want to find combat casualty care uh, it's called TCCC triple c is the, is the name um, trauma combat casualty care and that is uh, The military name for it but there's a lot of former military guys who are teaching that to civilians and that's a great start. Uh, Then you need to learn how to do some long-term care. We have a class called um, Off-Grid Medical which teaches you how to deal with a situation where there is no higher care. Everything that you learn now is stabilize and transport to higher care but if you are the higher care what do you have to do? And so we'll have that, another version of that class in in the fall. That's a really exciting class. It's uh, taught by a medical doctor, and you learn how to do suturing and and uh, reinflating collapsed lungs, and and uh, all the way down to amputations. Wow,
1: that's not it's, for the squeamish.
2: No, it's not. It really is not. If you have a weak stomach, this probably wouldn't be the best class
1: for you. It, uh, but it but seems like becoming fully prepared, and it, it's an absolute essential, but it seems like it's a full – it's, it's got to be – got to make it a full-time job, or am I wrong?
2: It's kind of a lifestyle. I mean, I hate, to, I hate to sell it that way because then people go, yeah, I'm not too interested in that. But, you know, you really have to be prepared to devote some time and effort. You have to be effective uh, medically. You have to have uh, good – Understanding of how to store food and how to rotate and so forth. You have there's a there's a whole ser- series of skills around preparedness that that uh, most people, I mean, they just think if they have a bunch of boxes of canned food in their fr- in their refrigerator, I mean, in their uh, garage, that's all they need. But there's actually a lot more to it, I think.
1: Uh, what's in your? Um, uh, do you have like a the one acre survival garden? Uh, if so, what, what, what's your your top ten? And veg. I have,
2: I have a black thumb, but <laughs> my wife is a pretty good gardener. We have just a vegetable garden. We grow corn and and squash and um, beans and peas and carrots. And, you know, just the usual garden: strawberries um, and tomatoes. Lots of tomatoes. They grow very well here. So uh, we we have good years and we have bad years. You know, and. uh um, we we dehydrate. uh have a dehydrator, and we bottle. I have uh, we have pressure cookers, and we uh, we do mason jars full of vegetables and so forth.
1: And what about protein? Do you raise uh, chickens, rabbits? I don't. No? Um,
2: no, I have neighbors that do, and so we'll trade. I'm sure our, our next door neighbor has a very full chicken pen, and a couple other neighbors in the neighborhood do. It's one of those things that I would do if I were around more, but I'm traveling so much that it just is a little prohibitive. The garden is self-watering; I have a t- it's all on a timer and drip system, and that I don't have to worry about.
1: Well, Kevin, uh, I know this this conversation may be a little unsettling to some people, but the old saying forewarned, forearmed, or fore, what is it, forearmed? I'm like you. I've got a block. I heard that every day of my yeah. life as well. It's forewarned, forearmed, right? right. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, you uh, you prepare for the worst and you hope for the best. And, um, you know, if nothing happens, hey, now you know how to darn socks and maybe field gut a moose in the uh, field, gut dress a moose, and, and can uh, some uh, Romano tomatoes. What's wrong with that?
2: Nothing wrong.
1: Kevin, uh, a real pleasure. Again, let's uh, let's tell people about uh, the upcoming event in Montreal in May.
2: Yep, let's, uh, let's plan on uh, looking at our calendar and uh, going on our website, looking at the calendar. And uh, the dates are the, the um, 12th, 13th, and 14th of May in Montreal.
1: And all they need to do is go to onpointtactical.com and they can register right there. That's correct. Kevin, a real pleasure. Thank you. I hope we'll talk again. Hey, thank you. Kevin Reeve, founder, director, On Point Tactical Tracking School, Urban Survival. All right, my website, strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal to the radio, the TV, the live events. And uh, say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, T. And as always, follow the truth.
0: Listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio.
1: Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long haul truck, your taxi cab, RV camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. This is the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett, and I bid thee the warmest of welcomes. A uh, Colin Hall is an independent researcher, investigator, author, uh, and he's standing by from England. He's got a very curious and strange tale involving a multi-car pileup on the M6 motorway near Birmingham, England back in November 2009. Uh, nothing, about, uh, nothing unusual about that, you say, but the crash was precipitated by a flash of intense light, according to witnesses. The tarmac was set on fire. The three lead cars in the crash were all on fire. Uh, and then, without giving too much away, it gets really, really bizarre after that. Uh, And then a similar crash near the Eiffel Tower in Paris about six months later. Again, very strange. Some might say paranormal occurrences surrounding that crash, all covered up by local police and the media. Uh, Colin Hall is standing by to tell you more about the M6 and Paris crashes. We also have some uh, audio tape a police audio tape as well that we'll uh, we'll be playing. In the meantime, just a reminder, no hangout on air tonight. We will resume the HOA next week when Elbert returns, and then you'll be able to stream the uh, the video of this program live on YouTube. You get to watch the radio. It's really cool. Uh, Elbert and I did post some stories, however, up on the website, and you may want to check those out. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the radio page. Up at the top of the radio page for The Conspiracy Show, there is a slide carousel containing all sorts of great stories, and just click on whatever grabs your attention. Uh, If secret underground bases are your thing, then we've got a great story for you from a website called WeShapeLife.org, WeShapeLife.org, and the piece reveals top hidden underground hideouts all over the United States. Uh, And then there's this bombshell described on the website, YourNewsWire.com. Shock waves are reverberating around the Kremlin as word spreads regarding an extraordinary meeting called uh, called by Vladimir Putin recently, where, according to sources, the Russian president said, "Now get this: ninety five per cent of the world's ruling class are not even human uh, but are cold-blooded hybrids who are members of an ancient cult. I don't know did Putin actually uh, out the ruling elites as a bunch of reptilians?" Uh, I can't vouch uh, for the veracity of this story, but you can read it and decide for yourselves. Those are just two of the tantalizing tidbits available in the slide carousel on the website. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the radio page. Okay, this one, uh, as I mentioned, is a real head-scratcher. I had Colin Hall on the program several years ago when I first got wind of his... Strange story, Uh, two car pileups, one on the M6 in England, another six months later in Paris. A lot of similarities between the two crashes, and quite frankly, the details, if true, are just plain weird. And here uh, he is uh, joining us again with an update on the M6 and Paris crashes. Colin Hall is a security consultant based in England. He became interested in the reports about the M6 paranormal crash and the Paris crash, and has written a book about it, uh, Volume 1. Uh, and perhaps after this program, he'll be busy working on Volume 2 of the M6 and Paris Crash. Colin Hall, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good to talk to you again. How are
4: you? I'm very good, Richard, and thanks for having me back.
1: And stay, uh, And thank you for being up at uh, 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 2 a.m. Uh, over there in merry old England. Whereabouts are you in
4: England? Um, based at the moment um, up in the northwest, uh, have been traveling a little bit, as as I do with my, my regular job, so I've sort of been flitting between the northwest and the south uh, of the country for the last few months, just on various projects, to be fair.
1: This, the, the Paris M6 crashes, um, you contacted me, I'm trying to remember when we spoke last, but uh, to be honest, I was not aware of this story, and it has stuck with me, and I know we have an update uh, tonight, and that's why you're joining us, but this has to go down as one of the most bizarre uh, head scratching stories I've ever come across in my 20 years uh, doing this type of radio. And um, uh, how did you first learn about uh, before we you know talk about it in depth? how did you first hear about the Paris M six crashes?
4: Well, I was doing some research for a client, um, and you know, part of part of what I do is security consultancy. So, um, we'll map out routes, we'll look at um, risks, um, and part of what I was analysing actually, and it is it is very mundane, um, was a a trip, you know, within the M6. Now. <laughs> I, as I was doing my research, I stumbled across these stories. And probably like like yourself, I became rather fascinated, borderline obsessed. And then, of course, the more I researched into the M6, then obviously things were allegedly happening in Paris. So I started to research that. So I jumped on a plane, went to Paris, drove up and down the M6. Um, and before I knew it, I'd um, collected enough material and, and released a book called Fact or Fiction.
1: Factor fiction, the Paris and M6 crashes. Colin Hall is, is with us. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. And, and those not familiar with this uh, bizarre series of incidents uh, on the M6, this is a major uh, motor route, highway, if you will, uh, in England. And, of course, uh, another similar incident that happened in Paris. So take us back to the beginning and, and give us sort of the thumbnail Reader's Digest version.
4: Well, the, the the first of the the, the two incidents that, that allegedly happened was the one based over on uh, the M6 near Birmingham, which we can now confirm with this new evidence that's come to light. Um, there were a sequence of events during what again appears to have been a, a very normal um, RTA road traffic accident. Um, we have vehicles that were involved in a, a low speed pile up. Um, But here's where it gets a bit weird, if you like. Um, Witnesses in and around this crash scene reported seeing a bright light. Um, There were unconfirmed reports of some sort of burning on the tarmac and also unconfirmed reports that the passengers in the front three vehicles um, simply disappeared. Um, now this was reported on by, by a chap called Mark Collins, who I've never, ever been able to contact face to face. Um, but this chap released a series of reports.
1: Online, right?
4: Yes. Online, um, claimed to be some journalist. Um, and it, he reported initially on the crash, uh, on the M6. And then all of a sudden another incident pops up near, uh, near to the Eiffel Tower in Paris, but. Again, it got very, very strange because we have the same thing. We have the flashing lights. We have, I think, this time there was reports that um, the, the, the passengers or the occupants in the car disappeared momentarily. Um, and then we have this um, scenario, the um, Petit Salpetrier Hospital in Paris, um, where somebody broke into the morgue. Uh, again, they were arrested. Allegedly, they were tampering with the bodies. Um, quite why, I don't know. I mean, I, I asked a couple of people about this, but, you know, there was allegedly um, some injecting going on. And, and, of course, you don't inject a dead body. There's no reason, unless, of course, you're embalming them. Right. Or you're extracting uh, something with a hypodermic uh, needle. Yes, of course. I mean, you know, but this was definitely injection in rather Ah, than extraction out. So just to be
1: Um, clear, Colin, there were fatalities in the Paris crash. There were bodies taken to a morgue.
4: Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. But what about
1: the M6? Any fatalities?
4: Uh, No. And I, I think that this is interesting because... The people in the front of these vehicles, as far as I'm aware, um, have never ever been found. So how they would be classed, I don't know. Um, but there is that difference between the two incidents, um, according to these reports by Mark Collins. So I mean, I I, I guess from that and being what I am as a Sam, a consultant in the security industry, I got sort of hooked on it um, and delved even deeper. And the more I delved, the less I could actually find out. And pretty much everywhere I turned, uh, I was stonewalled, which, again, was, was quite unusual for something that was allegedly quite high profile.
1: What's the time frame on this? When did this happen?
4: Well, we now know, and we've had it confirmed, um, that the crash on the M6 happened in November 2009. Um, We also now know that the crash um, in Paris happened, I believe it was in March 2010. So they were within sort of six months of each other. Right. Um, And as I say, the the MO is the same. Bright lights, you know, people disappearing and reappearing. Um, The only difference is there were fatalities allegedly in Paris. They weren't on the M6. They just disappeared.
1: And and witnesses, uh, have you been able to contact witnesses in Paris? And again, this event happened about six months later, 2010. Uh, witnesses who were on the scene may be involved in the accident.
4: No. I mean, again, when I was out in Paris, um, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe my reputation precedes me, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it was quite unnerving. I mean, you know, poking around the Eiffel Tower, in 2010, um, asking questions of the gendarme. They just completely blamed me. Um, there was a cafe near to um, the Avenue de New York, um, which was sort of like the, this, the road that runs parallel to the Eiffel Tower. Um, again, very, very quiet, very cold shoulders. So uh, no witnesses. The, the only statements of fact that we actually had to go on was um, were the reports by Mark Collins, which again made it, and I've always used the word, these alleged incidents, um, you know, was it fact or was it fiction? Um, I thought it could have been an elaborate hoax. Um, And, you know, a lot of it pointed to that. But of course, the reaction on the floor in Paris sort of made you wonder, okay, perhaps there is something more to this.
1: Right. And, um, again, the... The number of people missing, I guess, in the Paris crash?
4: Well, they weren't missing. There were four bodies. Just four bodies? Four bodies that were recovered. Okay, so nobody missing in
1: the Paris crash, but what made it similar to the M6 crash was the bright light. Was the tarmac on fire there as well?
4: I I, I guess so. I don't know. Okay. Um, We know that there was uh, reports of a bright light. We know that there was reports, um, again, on, on the Mark Collins reports, um, that uh, passengers momentarily disappeared. So it was a very similar MO. Um, I guess the physical evidence, i.e. the bodies, um, is the difference. Right. And also, why on earth would you inject the dead bodies? Exactly. Well, you know, three years on, um, yeah, answers or questions are slowly being answered.
1: And But you've had some confirmation on the ground, you said. what? What sort of... What sort of things have been verified, substantiated, and by whom?
4: Well, again, over the last, what, three, four weeks, um, there's been this release. There's been two releases, in fact. Um, the first release with two images taken at the um, Petit Salpetriere Hospital. Um, the first image is of a suspect holding a device and the second image is of that device on the mortuary floor. Now, these have been released by somebody. I don't know who he is um, or she, Um, but when you look at the images and when you look back at the reports, they appear to corroborate two things. First, somebody was clearly in possession of some strange-looking device um, and that that device found its way into the morgue. So that was the first thing. Uh, Last week, we then get confirmation of events on the M6. Um, There is an audio clip that's been posted online. Now, again, whoever has posted this audio clip alleges that this audio clip is a section that was removed from the original police control room audio. Um, in it, I think it's just over a minute long.
3: Yeah, we
1: are going to play that, uh, Colin. We'll play that when we come back um, off of the next break. We'll hear this alleged police audio recording that was removed initially from the, I guess, the first audio recordings that were released. And this uh, this uh, bit that we're going to hear would, would tend to lend some credence uh, to the uh, the Mark Collins uh, story and and um, and and your version of the events, the Paris and M6 crashes, uh, perhaps the most unusual um, story you've never heard. But you're going to hear about it tonight. Colin Hall, my guest, the author of Fact or Fiction, the Paris and M6 crashes, and we'll play that clip when we come back. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay right here.
0: My name is Richard Serrett. ¶¶ Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio.
1: And we are back uh, with Colin Hall, the author of Fact or Fiction, The Paris and M6 Crashes, Volume 1. Uh, but I'm guessing, Colin, with this uh, new information that's coming to light, in particular this police audio clip we're about to hear, volume two will uh, will be in the works soon.
4: Uh, yes, I, I definitely think that there's um, there's scope um, given what we've now had confirmed by this alleged whistleblower. So yeah, no, totally agreed. Yes.
1: Okay. So again, just to uh, to to to. Uh, Recap, the M6 crash, November 2009, you had a, a car pileup uh, on the M6 motor, motor route. The, um, the crash, uh, witnesses say, the crash was precipitated by a, a bright flash of light. Uh, the tarmac was on fire. Uh, and the drivers in the three front vehicles involved in the crash completely vanished. Do I have it right so far?
4: It, absolutely, yes.
1: Then, six months later, similar circumstances, a, uh, a crash near the Eiffel Tower in 2010. And in this case, there were fatalities. Although, according to some reports, some of the occupants of these cars seemed to, what, flit in and out of, um, well, they were there and then they were gone and then they were back again.
4: That, that's exactly it i mean i think the phrase they used was they disappeared momentarily
1: disappeared momentarily um, these bodies ended up in the morgue and according to, again to some reports uh someone was seen in the morgue injecting the cadavers with something we don't know what mm. uh, which is very strange okay now we're gonna just tee up this uh this police audio clip we're gonna hear colin
3: yeah
4: i mean th- this was this was posted last week um I- i've had I've listened to it a lot. Um, this is uh, allegedly a, a section of the audio between the police and the control room um, at, at the centre of the M6 crash um, that was removed. Now, in the scheme of things, you remove something because you want it hidden, you want it buried. This was removed clearly if if this is, you know, the real deal for exactly that reason because that audio clip completely and utterly confirms... Those initial reports by Mark Collins, but also um, it elevates the status of what actually happened there from just a mundane, low speed pile up to something far more sinister. All right,
1: let's have a listen to that clip. How, Colin, how do we go about, or how do you go about authenticating uh, these uh, these tapes? Are you able to compare them to the original police audio tapes, or how do you do it?
4: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I don't have access to the original tapes, um, but I've got a, a very good contact of mine who, he's a forensic expert in, in audio recordings. Um, I've, as I say, I've listened to it extensively. I always go back to the first and possibly the most important thing, is, which is the motive. You know, what is the motive for this? Um, and then I have a look at what we have presented to us. Now, you know, when I'm listening to this as it is at this moment in time, um, it, it sounds extraordinarily accurate um, to the reports that were written by Mark Collins. But more importantly as well if you're going to go and put something together of that quality, there has to be some form of a reason behind it. Um, And then to sit on it for nearly three years after I put my book out and seven years, is it nearly? Yes. Um, Since the actual incident took place. Now, whoever's done this has taken a risk if this is real. Um, And,
3: a whistleblower
1: okay. a whistleblower perhaps inside uh,
4: inside the uh, the police it, uh, police it could be some sort of special investigation unit um, I, I don't know where that inquiry would have been stationed clearly what's happened is they've collected all of this information um, and they've kept it quiet and someone somewhere has got extraordinarily angry and decided I'm going to put this out into the public domain so you,
1: know. you mentioned that this was missing from earlier reports. So what I was referring to when I said, can you compare this? So if, if there are some recordings available uh, but this bit was missing, uh, would you be able to go back and match your forensic expert, match the voices and, and so forth, the ambient sound, all of that kind of stuff to match it to the, the, the police, police audio?
4: If we had access to it, yes. The only, the only reason we know that this is missing from the original is from this posting by this whistleblower. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, you know, the, the statement is is there. Like, you know, they've, they've said that this was basically redacted. I see. I guess is the, is the phrase you'd use. Um, and as I say, the only reason you would do that is to keep that incident absolutely under the radar because it would just be a normal, mundane crash. Um, what we have here is something that corroborated Mark Collins's reports. If I had access to the original audio, though you're quite correct, I could match everything. I could have my experts sit there, you know, second by second and, and track everything to check for authenticity. As it is, what we're having to do is go through archives uh, or what I know he'll be doing, certainly, is looking at archives of police recordings from the past. He'll be checking all sorts of things like accents, etc., cetera, um, terminology used, and then going from there. As a, a layman's opinion, um, it's very deadpan, which is very typical of police communication. Um, there's no uh, emotion in it. It's simple reporting, uh, and clearly that officer is, is near a road. So, you know, just from a very basic um, level of examination, um, it does appear on the surface of it to be the real deal. The the M6
1: crash, the Paris crash, were there any survivors uh, in rear vehicles?
4: Well, in, on the M6, you'd have to presume yes. I mean, this is a multiple car pileup um, and there were no fatalities reported. Um, now, quite whether these people behind these first few vehicles knew what was going on i don't know i mean specifically this this officer was instructed to throw up a cordon right so nobody could get near to it so as far as they're concerned i mean a flash could be explained by any number of things um you know as far as they're concerned it's just a simple crash um the police are thrown up a cordon drive past and off you go
1: but uh, uh, have you or anyone sort of put the clarion call out online uh, asking for anyone who was on the m M6- six in that area that night to come forward?
4: Yes. I've, I've, I mean, I've talked about it publicly at length. Um, nobody has ever come forward. Um, I, for what reason, I don't know. I, I cannot believe that they would not have been aware that they were involved in a crash. Unless, again, we're talking seven years ago. It was three, four years after um, when I released the book where the people simply had dismissed it as a, as a non-event.
1: Uh, or those who saw something where is it sort of another situation like Roswell where they were sworn to secrecy
4: always a possibility but it's very very difficult to um, coerce you know a relatively large amount of people into doing that but it is I would never rule it out Um, you know bear in mind I come into this with a completely open mind um, as I did when I reviewed the first, um, you know, bits of evidence that I could get my hands on. So, yeah, I mean, any, anything is possible. All I know now is the facts are I've got two images now that uh, appear to be from the Petit salpetriere Hospital, and then we've got this audio clip that appears to be from the crash scene on the M6. Now, that puts us ahead a few notches from where we were, and it gives us something tangible to work on and look at and then, again, try and go back and backtrack and see if we can unlock some proper solid witnesses that we can talk to. I am on it. It, You know, as we speak now, we are trying to see what we can do. Now we've got specifics in terms of dates, um, uh, you know, particularly in Paris. I mean, we've got four bodies in a hospital, in a morgue. Somebody knew about these bodies. You know, we've now got a picture of a, a device that was on the mortuary floor.
1: Can you describe that device?
4: (laughs) Well, it's quite funny, actually, because I posted it somewhere and someone said it looked like a pregnancy testing kit. Uh, And I have Hmm. to say, I did chuckle at that because I thought, yeah, the one one slight um, issue is that you've got what looks like some sort of screen um, and then it looks like there's some sort of triangular tip on it. Um, which, again, has been described as, as the device that, that can account for the puncture wounds on the skin of three out of the four bodies. So, yeah, I mean, it is it's hard to see with the images, but it is definitely not something that um, I would consider to be a medical device as such. Um, again, we are investigating it. Uh, I'm trying like crazy to see if I can unlock the door at the hospital. As you can imagine, you know, hospitals aren't particularly forthcoming when you talk about a major incident involving a mortuary being broken into. These are fairly sensitive places.
1: Right, right. Uh, Do we we have names of the deceased? No, nothing.
4: Nothing at all. All we've got now, um, which is, you know, considerably further forward than we had before, is we've got a device and someone clearly holding that device coming out of one of the lifts in the hospital.
1: And no no pictures of the deceased in the
4: mortuary? No, no. I mean, but bear, bear in mind that uh, mortuary is a fairly sacred place. Um, so I, I can't imagine that there would have been any sort of CCTV. I could be wrong. I, I could, you know, I could well be wrong. Uh, all I know is when I went to the hospital, I couldn't get beyond reception
1: virtually. Right. And the identity of the person holding the device is his,
4: his or her face visible. Not in this image, no. I mean, what we've got basically is a very blurry image. I, I'm guessing that's from a CCTV still. Um, I've been coming out of this elevator and you see the device in his hand. And then, like I say, later on, we've got this device uh, on the floor in the mortuary. So we haven't got a clear view of who this person is yet. And
1: uh, the, the likely hospital involved, I mean, are you able to sort of Based on the location of the accident, through process of elimination, determine the most likely location for this hospital?
4: Well, we've always known through the reports from Mark Collins and from this latest um, disclosure that it is the Petit Salpetriere ah, Hospital. In okay, Paris. you did mention that, right. Now, there's an interesting thing about that. That is not the nearest hospital to the incident that happened because the incident happened near the Eiffel Tower. Um, but these four bodies weren't there. For what reason, I don't know. Maybe they had some sort of special facility there. But it definitely wasn't the nearest hospital.
1: Ah, well, uh, those of us who followed the, the untimely demise of Prince, Princess Diana uh, will recall that she wasn't taken to the nearest hospital either. That seems to be kind of a common denominator. Um,
4: well, listen. Well, we- <laughs> Yes, can, can I just add, I believe she was taken to that hospital.
1: Oh, the same hospital? Yeah. Interesting. All right. We'll uh, take another time out. Fact or fiction, the Paris and M6 crashes volume one, Colin Hall. Really, the, uh, the lead investigator on this is with us, and we are trying to unravel this unscrutable mystery uh, dipped in an enigma wrapped in a chocolatey coating. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett.
0: The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio.
1: Colin Hall is with us. Uh, how can we get a copy of Factor Fiction, The Paris and M6 Crashes, Volume 1, Colin?
4: Uh, at the moment, you can actually download it on Comixology. Comixology. Can you spell yes. that?
1: Can you spell that for us?
4: A yes, it's C-O-M-I-X-O-L-O-G-Y. If you search for it, you'll find it on there at the moment. There's currently no sort of hard copies, but I'm looking to change that in the next couple of months.
1: Aside from, from you, Colin, is anyone taking any initiative in, in trying to unravel this, or, or are you the guy? Um, at the moment, I think I'm the guy. It's such an amazing, curious story. I'm, 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 I'd be fascinated to know why more are not getting involved. I
4: think, like I say, I think it was under the radar to such an extent um, that it was probably dismissed as as being a nothing. Um, now, of course, with evidence comes questions, um, and I think that you know the, these couple of bits that we've seen, um, and and I hasten to add, we're being told um, on this this blog that, um, you know, that this, this person is unlocking evidence off, a, off a, a drive, a hard drive. So we'll wait and see if there's anything else that comes out. Let me
1: just, but, let me just summarize the, the, the case once again, and then I'd like to play that audio tape. Are we able to do that, uh, Ian, in the other room? Can we play the audio again in just a moment? So let me just uh, remind our listeners, Colin Hall is with us. The book is Fact or Fiction, The Paris and M6 Crashes, Volume 1. Here is the mystery... November two thousand and nine, along the M six motor route in uh, England, uh, near near Birmingham, I believe it was.
4: That's correct. Yes.
1: Uh, we had a uh, a multi car pileup and according to um, witnesses, the um, the the car, the, the pile-up was precipitated by this bright flash of light. The tarmac was on fire, but the lead three cars in the pileup were empty. And uh, then, six months later, flash ahead six months later, similar circumstances near the Eiffel Tower on a street in Paris. Again, multi-car pileup. This time, however, there were fatalities. Now, witnesses, and we don't know who these witnesses are, but according to these reports, the, the bodies in these cars seem to disappear and then reappear. Very strange. Then we get reports. These bodies are taken to a hospital in Paris uh, and then photographs, perhaps off of a closed-circuit video uh, camera, are released very blurry that appears to show someone injecting these uh, cadavers in a mortuary and they leave behind a rather strange-looking device. Some have suggested it looks like a pregnancy test type apparatus. do I, do, is that all accurate, yeah, Colin? Okay, that,
4: that is absolutely accurate. I mean, you know, the other thing I would add that um, I think it was three out of the four bodies were injected um, and the fourth body threw up some anomalies. I'm not quite sure what, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, this was definitely some, some sort of syringe, not, not a syringe that I've ever seen. But, you know, we, we can sort of say with, with a certain degree of authority that that, that device is a syringe.
1: All right, and then what's surfaced most recently, I guess, within the last, is it three or four weeks, is this piece of audio tape, correct?
4: Uh, Last week, in fact.
1: Last week, okay. This is supposedly, reportedly, a police audio tape between a a constable, a traffic constable and the control center, uh, right immediately following this multi-car pileup on the M6. Let's have a listen. Over. There you have it. Um, Perhaps a piece of uh, missing police audio. And um, whether it's legitimate or not, well, Colin Hall, the author of Fact or Fiction, The Paris and M6 Crashes, is working frantically to try and uh, determine whether that's uh, authentic. Is, I mean, what's the... uh, uh, I mean, are you talking about this on social media and are you getting any feedback from, from, from people? What, what's the, what are people on the ground saying?
4: I think, uh, y- yes uh, I'm talking a little bit but <clears throat> I, think, I think people genuinely are surprised. Um, of course like I've said, because this is the first proper piece of tangible evidence, um, I, I think that they're quite shocked that the evidence has come to light after such a long time.
1: Absolutely. Um, Listen, i got to jump in here. Sorry, Colin, we're uh, we're, we're going to head into a break. We'll pick this up on the other side. The M6 in Paris
0: crashes with Colin Hall here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back. Colin Hall, Fact or Fiction, The Paris and M6
1: Crashes, Volume 1, and uh, this is quite a mystery. Um, a multi-car pileup on the M6, November 2009. The lead three cars on fire and nobody in them. And this is all precipitated by a bright flash of light. Uh, and uh, the tarmac is on fire. Speed ahead six months later, Paris erode near the Eiffel Tower. Multi-car pileup. Uh, this time, uh, fatalities, four bodies. Witnesses said they appeared, disappeared momentarily, and then reappeared. Uh, allegedly taken to a mortuary where they are, um, uh, well, where someone is caught on camera uh, injecting the cadavers with something, uh, and that's really all that we know, uh, except for that police audio that uh, we heard earlier that uh, has surfaced, which seems to corroborate the eyewitness accounts of what happened on the M6. We heard audio from a, uh, I guess, a traffic constable who arrived at the scene, described the multi-car pileup. The lead three cars in the pileup on fire and empty, uh, and Colin Hall is uh, is on the case. And I was asking you before the break, uh, what's sort of the um, what's going on in the rumor mill on social media and elsewhere. I mean, are are people, uh, are there people in in the area, let's say uh, in Birmingham, who are sort of aware of this, and and are they talking about it in pubs? What do you hear? What do you
4: know? um well they're definitely aware of it because um you know i mean for, for a start there's a couple of articles in the region in the local magazines and newspapers uh about the book so whether they're chatting or not i don't know i think i think what the key thing here is that um in you know on social media at the moment people are seeing for the first time like i am this evidence come out um and you know reaction has been um shock you know it's, it's seven years on. Um, You know, so to keep something that quiet for seven years, that's that's a hell of a time. As you referred to earlier on, you know, Roswell, people kept that quiet for such a long time. Um, So, you know, I I think if there's more evidence and we're being told reliably that uh, there will be more evidence, I I think it'll, if you like, I think the more we see, the more we'll almost dare to believe is true and it becomes more about fact than fiction. Um, but I, I've certainly seen, you know, what I've seen over the last few weeks is beyond anything I ever expected to see. I mean, I, I never thought we'd hear an audio clip. Um, you know, that's, that's pretty sensitive stuff. And whoever's got it uh, has gone to a lot of trouble to get it out there.
1: Uh, I would imagine that the M6 is heavily surveilled, a lot of, uh, I mean I know London is one of the most surveilled cities on the planet so I'm guessing that there are a lot of cameras even just for traffic reports and so forth along the M6 somewhere there must be uh footage of this car this this multi car pileup happening near the I think it was the 11th junction near Birmingham yes. it's it's got to be out there is there I mean I in here in Canada we have the um, uh, you can you can launch a FOIA request, Freedom of Information uh, Act, it's called, and you can you can get access to this. Do you have something similar in England? And if so, have you initiated what we call a FOIA?
4: Um, we we do. Um, I've never initiated it, only because uh, I never sought that as a, a plausible route to gain access to evidence. Um, they are perfectly acceptable. For regular cases, when you cross over into areas that are sensitive, you tend to find that these requests are rebuked. Um, It's fairly common. Um, Anything that's to do with national security, for example, you will not get access to those files. Um, One would imagine it would be very similar with this. I will try because now what I have is a reason to go in, which is this audio clip, um, I like you would be very interested to see what they say.
1: Right. Um, it, and if
4: they stonewall. Exactly. It's, um,
1: it reminds me of, um, this sort of circumstance going back to, uh, when, when LBJ was running for governor in Texas back in the 1950s and he, uh, accused his political opponent of something and, uh his advisor said well you can't accuse him of that it's not true and he said i don't care i just want to hear him deny it so it would be as you say uh, if this is sort of a national security type situation and i mean on the surface it seems you know pretty innocuous a multi car pileup uh, what could be involved there that would entail national security but if they if they stonewall you that will be very telling so it would certainly for that reason alone be worth launching a freedom of information request
4: well yeah and, and plus i've got you know this evidence to point and say well yeah. it happened in november 2009 um it happened near junction 11 uh on the m6 and therefore we've got everything we need um to stop you chasing up and down every single camera on the m6 because there are literally thousands of them like you said um so we've got something now a bit more pinpoint. Um, and something that we can be very concise about and say, right, there are 15 cameras <clears throat> in that region. Um, let's check what the status was in 2009, how many cameras there were. We would like the CCTV images for this period um, in November. In fact, we'd like them for the whole of November because we still actually don't know the date. All we know is it was in November 2009. Right. Um, but we could be a lot more targeted now with this, whereas before... It was all very much guesswork and thinking, okay, you know, let's try this, let's try that. Well, Freedom of Information Act, you know, is great. But if you hit them with a request that's so um, broad, you won't get anywhere.
1: No, um, you have to be very specific. You won't specific. even get
4: a denial, to right. be fair. Um, <clears throat> whereas what we have here now gives us that, that absolute solid, solid information that we need to go in and, and, and nail them, to be fair.
1: And what of this mysterious? Um, I'm sorry, his name again. That who posted the story originally, Colin, Mark Collins. Mark um, Collins. Yes.
4: What? What? Who? What do we know about him? We know he was a journalist. Um, we know that um, he wrote for a site, I believe, because um, it was on a couple of the reports. I can't remember, but I'll go back and check. Um, we also know from an interview. <clears throat> with somebody that it was his brother, apparently, who was at the back of the crash, which is how he got to know about this. Uh-huh. Oh. Um, there, was a, there was an interview he did on a website, um, stateside, actually, um, that discussed this. Aside from that, we know very little. We've, I've had some interaction with him online, and that's about it. He came across as somebody who sounded quite embittered by the whole thing, Whether he was dumped on, I don't know. Whether he is part of the plan, I don't know. You know, I've always said that this was either a diversion, this was a fake, or this was the real deal. Um, And all the players involved are probably all as guilty as each other. It's just trying to work out who did what, where, and when, um, and then get to the motive, and then find out exactly, you know, what transpired at at these two locations.
1: And when you say Mark Collins was a journalist, do you mean like a credible uh, a journalist who worked for uh, mainstream media or what type of journalist was he?
4: No, he was, he was, as far as I could see, he was a I guess a little bit of a, a journalist wannabe. Um, what they call what a
1: citizen's was... journalist nowadays, a citizen's journalist.
4: Um, yeah, I, that's probably a good word describing it. I mean, I, like I say, the information is so scant. I mean, the guy has disappeared from view. Um, All I know is that he he did a few articles here and there. There are a few articles on his blog, to be fair. Clearly, the man was trying to make a name for himself. Right, right. Um, Whether he was trying to leverage these reports um, into what he was doing, I don't know. Um, But clearly, nothing has happened on his blog for for years. And your last communication with him online was when? (laughs) Uh, I think it was last year. Last year, okay. Last year, and um, and he was allegedly writing a book. Now, th- th- to be fair, you've reminded me of something here because he actually said last year he was writing a book, um, which, has as far as I can see, has never seen the light of day. Now, interesting that he would say that out of the blue, and then obviously we see this stuff. Now, whether you know, there's been some conversations going on, and people have been told to be quiet um, because this is coming up, I don't know, but that was the last communication I had. Well, uh, I mean, let's let's speculate a little
1: bit. Uh, I mean, assuming that this all happened, how would you? What are your theories as to what happened to the the, the occupants of the the lead three cars and the pileup on the M six and the, uh, the the four bodies? that appeared to disappear momentarily uh, in the crash in Paris. What's going on
4: here, Colin? Well, if I was to speculate and be you know, fairly brutal about it, you could turn around and say, well, the, the fire was a fire and the bodies were burnt beyond, you know, they're just vaporized. And what caused that fire? You know, that's one theory. But then that doesn't quite tie in because, you know, the, the policeman's talking about how... The vehicle still being there and being on fire. Uh, and it would take a pretty powerful uh, amount of heat to vaporize a body without vaporizing the car. It doesn't work. It,
1: right. It I mean, go. a crematorium, uh, even with those extreme temperatures, obviously, there's still ash left. There's, some, there's going to be something left. Uh, absolutely.
4: Um, so I, I honestly don't know. I, you know, I mean, I, I got tied up and I looked at um, Michu Kaku. And Ronald Mallet, talking about the multiverse theory and time travel mm-hmm. <laughs> now you know <laughs> there was a report I read that amused me highly because it was it was on a website I think called unexplained and it said time travel um, and and they' basically written their own version of events and they talked about you know these people disappeared because they've disappeared off into another time well of course me being me, I went off and investigated Ronald Mallet. Yes. Now, Ronald Mallet, I believe, is based in, he's he's American, I think it's either Chicago or Boston. Uh, University of Connecticut. Okay, uh, close. Uh, This guy, um, he gave a speech that was quite interesting, to, to say the least, because he turned around and said, time travel probably could have already been invented because future generations are probably back here now, and we wouldn't know. And I thought that's an interesting thought. <clears throat> Michu Kaku talks about the multiverse theory. And again, when you look at that in detail, um, it's very clever. So I got dragged into all these different areas completely, utterly at random. Um, and yes, it's a theory. You know, I mean, these people could have been snapped away into some distant time. Um, you know, do I believe in that? I, I Physically have no idea until I can actually lay my hands on the evidence that categorically states, yes, that happened. Well, what's, what's that
1: old saying? When everything else has been ruled out, what remains, no matter how
4: implausible, must be the truth? Well, that, that is it. And that's an often used phrase. Um, and, and I agree with that. Um, you know, so, I mean, you can rule out they were burnt because the cars wouldn't be there. Definitely um all we know is that they disappeared did they reappear we don't know um we know that we've had this audio this is the first bit of evidence we've got from the crash um and then we've got cctv that we're now going to try and get so hopefully we can build up a picture of what actually happened Um, and then after that we can go back and start crossing off more of these you know theories
1: and again, just uh, we're almost out of time here, but to pursue this, this time travel uh, possibility that uh, somehow the, the missing occupants of the uh, M6 crash uh, were somehow, I don't know, catapulted into another dimension or another time uh, frame uh, and perhaps this bright flashing light had something to do with it. Uh, the, uh, the 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 cadaver or the bodies of the, the, the uh, victims of the Paris crash that appear to disappear momentarily and then reappear, and then this strange uh, figure who is caught on camera in the mortuary where these four uh, bodies are being held, uh, injecting them with something. So what's the idea that he could be from the future? He's coming back. I don't know. It's it's all it's just a riddle, isn't it?
4: Well, it is. I mean, in, you know, I'll, I'll read directly because I've just got this guy's blog up. <clears throat> and it says, here, the autopsy report showed that all four bodies, um, high levels of succinylcholine in their bloodstream. A morgue technician went on record to suggest, in their professional opinion, these people could not have controlled a motor vehicle. Now, I need to controlled. find out who this hmm. morgue technician is, because if they're saying that they couldn't have controlled a vehicle due to being loaded with a load of succinylcholine, um, that adds a further twist into to what on earth happened.
1: Well, you got a lot to chew on, and, uh, <laughs> and we will look forward to Fact or Fiction, Volume 2, The Paris and M6 Crashes. Uh, Colin, please uh, keep us up to date, and we'll get you back on when you know more. Thank you so much for this.
4: Brilliant. Thanks for having me on.
1: Colin Hall. All right. My thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, John Franz. Thanks to you all for listening. Back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime... Don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.